church. <laughs> Good morning, neighbors. Thanks for your patience with us while we uh, iron out the details of how to run a, a live stream. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, you wouldn't think it's as different as it actually is, but um, it is different. So glad to be able to take some time with you this morning. Glad to be able to take um, a look at our passage today. And uh, if, if I can just be completely transparent for a moment, it was not a passage I was excited to dig into. It's one that as I approached it, I thought, man, this, how am I going to pull this one out? How am I going to rescue God from the story that he's trying to tell through this, this guy? Um, which is pretty arrogant of myself to think, but that's where I started, and now I can see God's glory in it. So I'm excited to be able to walk with you through um, that together. We are, um, we've been in a series that we've called Break the Cycle, and in order to break the cycle, what we've done is zoomed in on every section of uh, what's, what Judges identifies as a sin cycle. And the sin cycle spins like this. Security sin, slavery, supplication, and salvation. So we've looked at all of them in depth except for salvation, um, where, where God jumps in and begins to save people. And that's where we're going to zoom in today. That's the, the section that we're going to um, really unpack this morning. But remember that as the book of Judges goes on, it starts with a cycle. It really is just kind of spinning like a propeller going around and around. But as uh, the, the nation of Israel continues to um, reject God, as they continue to spin on this cycle, it actually begins to spiral down. So as we, as we look together today at um, Judges chapter 16, we're actually at the end of the seventh cycle. We're at the end of the end of the cycles, and we are all the way down at the bottom, and things are about as bad as they're going to get um, before we move into uh, a, a worst of list, which we'll talk about a little bit more next, next time that we gather. Um, so you have probably, or you may be familiar with the character that we're going to zoom in on. His name is Samson. And if you learned about Samson from uh, your Sunday school teacher or, or something like that, a cartoon perhaps, then you think of this really muscular Captain America, Thor, muscular looking guy who's a hero of the Bible. And as we look, or as we open to Judges, and we're going to begin talking about in Judges chapter 13, Samson actually is an anti-hero. He's, he's not a very good hero. And I actually suspect that he wasn't very muscular either, um, which is a little bit besides the point. Um, but something that I think that we should consider. So as we begin, I'd like for us to pause together and pray. Uh, would, you, would you pray with me? <laughs> Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This morning, what I'd like to do is 
talk you through Samson's life before we zoom in on the end of it. So we're not going to read together Samson's story until we get closer to the end of our discussion. Um, but because I'm doing that, I'd like to give you our big idea up at the front end. And maybe this is a little bit of a spoiler for how I'm going to approach the story. But our big idea is this. God's salvation is not stopped by our rebellion against his designs. God's salvation is not stopped by our rebellion against his designs. The story of Samson is fascinating, and it begins in Judges chapter 13 with a line that's going to sound really familiar to us when we first approach it, but we're going to steer off really, really quick. Judges chapter 13 begins this way, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. Then verse 2 says, There was a certain man of Zorah, which is the town he lived in, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. So we've looked at uh, regularly, we've looked at this cycle of sin that the nation of Israel finds themselves in. Security, sin, slavery, supplication, asking for help, and then salvation. And chapter 13, verse 1, begins really similar. We've seen this over and over again. This is exactly how it always starts. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What's missing in Judges chapter 13 is supplication. Israel is not asking for help. They're in the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines are ruling over them for 40 years, and, and that has become for them the status quo. In fact, we'll see later on that when, when people begin to, uh, or when Samson begins to attack the Philistines, they say, why are you rocking the boat here? Like, things weren't great, but it was at least we knew what to expect. The people of Israel have become so accustomed to being under the rule of, other, of, of, a, of a foreign nation that they've completely stopped asking for help. And yet, God shows up. Even to a people that aren't asking for help, God shows up. And he shows up to the wife of Manoah. She was barren. She'd never had any kids. And what's fascinating about the wife of Manoah is that we don't know her name. She is known as the wife of Manoah or the mother of Samson, but that's it. And when you see characters in the Bible that God's omitted their name, um, I just tend to lean in a little bit closer to see what is it that God's doing with these people. And the angel of the Lord appears to the wife of Manoah and says, hey, I'm going to give you a son. You are going to have a child, but there's a couple things you need to be aware of. When, I, when, when, you, when you become pregnant, you need to do a couple of things. You need to stay away from strong drink and wine. Don't drink of the fruit of the vine because this person is going to be what's known as a Nazarite. And a Nazarite was a certain, uh, was, a, was a, um, a set of people who had committed themselves to follow God in a particular way for a particular time. Usually, if you were going to become a Nazarite, you would take a vow of your own choice. You would choose to do it. You'd set up some time limits. And then when it was over, it was over. The Nazarite vow was a temporary one. But God says, look, you guys aren't looking for help. You don't have anybody who's looking for me and seeking after me. I'm going to make one for you. And this guy is going to be set apart for me. So, hey, mom, like, you need to set the standard here. You're, I'm asking you not to drink wine 
for, for the whole time that you're pregnant with this guy. And then he is not supposed to drink wine either. He's neither supposed to touch a dead body or come into contact with any kind of a corpse. And he's not supposed to cut his hair. That was all part of the package of what made a Nazarite a Nazarite. Usually a temporary agreement between the person and God. This time, it's a, it's a covenant that God set up without the person's consent and said, this is how it's going to be because you guys aren't even looking, looking for my help. I'm going to have to do something different here. And it's really interesting. I'd encourage you to read it for yourself because the wife of Manoah comes to Manoah and says, you won't believe it. I just talked to a prophet in the field and he told me that I was going to get pregnant and that I needed to make the kid a Nazarite, which is, that's not how it works, but I don't know what to do. And Manoah says, well, who was it? She says, I don't know who it was. I didn't ask his name. I didn't ask where he came from. And Manoah says, well, we need to talk to this guy because I need some more instructions. Are there any fathers out there that when they learned that they were going to have a son, they said, hold on a second. I think I need some more instructions here. Let's go find this guy. That's exactly what Manoah did. He went and they, they prayed and they said, man, God, we don't know where this guy came from. We don't know where he's going, but can we meet him again so that we can get some more clarification? And Manoah says, they find him. He shows up to Manoah's wife again and she goes and finds Manoah this time and brings him to him. And, and Manoah says, hey, I need, I need some more details here. You're giving me this kid. You're saying this kid's going to come. What's his purpose? What is he going to do? And, and the angel of the Lord, whom they don't know at this time is the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord says, God's going to begin to save Israel through your kid. And so, again, here's your instructions. Don't shave his head. Don't let him touch dead things. Don't let him drink wine. Mom, that's on you too. Okay, like, that's the same instructions we had before, but I guess that's it. And how many of us as fathers have thought... I need more instructions, but this is all I got, so I'm going to make the best that I can do. And, and they do. They raise up this kid um, in chapter 13, and he grows, and he becomes strong. Uh, he, has, he, has a supernatural, uh, he has a supernatural strength that, that nobody really knows what to attribute it to, which makes me think that he's not a muscular kid. In fact, I actually think he's probably a nerdy-looking kid, really scrawny, um, uh, maybe even like a super hippie with, you know, long hair and and tie-dye and no real muscles to speak of. And everybody's like, why is that kid so strong? He shouldn't be able to pick that stuff up. I, I, I don't really get what's happening here. <clears throat> um, <laughs> but, but, it, but, the, but Samson grows up. So chapter 13 is kind of the preparation of Samson's life. It tells more about the story of his parents. And then in chapters 14 and 15, we have a look at how God worked through Samson. Remember, the people were not looking for a deliverer. They were not asking for help. And in fact, Samson is probably just kind of a spoiled brat and probably is really frustrated that his parents told him he can't drink wine, can't cut his hair, and can't touch dead things, because who doesn't want to poke any dead bodies with sticks when they come across them in the woods? Like, this is a real bummer for a kid. Um, and he grows up, and um, every time we see Samson making a decision, uh, he makes a decision based upon his loins, we'll say. Every time Samson does something different in his life, it's because he has seen a woman. And that's how he leads his life, which is what lays, makes me think that he was kind of a spoiled kid. And so he comes to his mom and dad. He says, hey, look, I went to this town and I saw this woman and I want her to be my wife. And they say, well, wait a second. She's not even an Israelite. Like, she's a Philistine. She's the people who are oppressing us. Can't you find anybody in the country? Is there nobody in our nation that could make a good wife for you? And he says, no, 
I want that woman. She looks good to me. And the parents are frustrated. But look with me in chapter 14 and verse 4. The parents are super frustrated. And his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So the Philistines are ruling over Israel, and the Lord wants to deliver Israel from the Philistines, but there's nobody in the nation who thinks that this is a problem, and Samson himself is not really looking to wage warfare. So this, this lust that Samson has is actually something that God is using to deliver his people. Our salvation is not stopped, or God's salvation is not stopped by our rebellion against his design. Even Samson being led by his loins is going to help God advance his purpose, which should make us uncomfortable. We should say, why is God working like that? That doesn't seem right. There's something uh, that doesn't gel there. And if you feel that tension, welcome to the book of Judges. Over and over again, we see God's people not doing things God's way, and God, in his grace and his compassion and his mercy, having to find or beginning to use things so that he can work his plan out. And it's not clean. It's not pretty. But God's salvation is not stopped by our rebellion against his design. So Samson's dad, Manoah, goes and gets this woman and arranges for a marriage. And Samson, uh, on his way to town, runs into a lion. He kills the lion, uh, which, you know, for a scrawny hippie kid, like, that's, that's kind of a big deal. He kills a lion with his bare hands. But he's not supposed to touch dead things. And in fact, he's so proud of himself that he keeps coming back to this corpse. And as he comes back, he finds honey, and the honey and the lion all become part of this trick that he plays when he goes and throws a wedding feast. And he throws this wedding feast, and all these Philistines come, and they are having a party. And, and the, the word in English, as you look at it in English, is actually hidden. But the, but the original word as this was written is that this was a, a, a party where there was much wine. It was a party for drinking. So Samson, uh, in this next chapter, has, has forgotten or could directly disobeyed the command that he would not touch dead things, and he's directly disobeyed the command that he would not drink wine. He's here partying. And he's mischievous. He throws this riddle out there, and then there's the, all of these politics where the brothers who were at the party try to convince the bride to help him out, and they've got seven days, and the bride pleads and pleads and pleads and pleads and pesters and pesters and pesters and pesters, and finally Samson says, enough, woman, here's the answer to my riddle. And she goes and tells the Philistines, and they get the answer, and then he's mad, and because, of, because he had bet that he would win, or he would win 30 articles of clothes, he says, all right, I don't have 30 articles of clothes. Let me go and kill some Philistines, take their nice clothes, and then I'll come back, and then the bet will be settled. So it's just ultimate, like, total family chaos. I don't know if your family has any kind of craziness like this, um, but Samson's kind of the middle of the chaos. He is not the calm in the eye of the storm. He is the rage in the middle of the storm. So he defeats Philistines. He's killing Philistines, which is what God wanted, but 
not actually something that, that uh, Samson was super into. He didn't seem to have any kind of problems with the Philistines. He wasn't trying to overthrow them or anything like that. But because he attacked these people, um, some people from the tribe of Judah, some other Israelites say, Samson, you killed these Philistines. Why are you rocking the boat? Things aren't great, but they were even. We knew what to expect. And we need, to, we need to take you into custody and take you over to the Philistines so that they can deal with you. We're not going to kill you, but we're going to take you over there because you've just rocked the boat so much. The people of Israel are under bondage and they don't cry out. And when God begins to attack and oppress their enemies, they rise up in defense of the enemies. It's as bad as it gets. But God's salvation is not stopped by our rebellion against his designs. And God ends up, or excuse me, and Samson, because of the result of being captured and taken into Philistine territory again, ends up killing a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, which a jawbone of a donkey ain't nothing to poke a stick at. Uh, is probably about as big as your forearm of a grown man. It's something that's hefty, something to wield, and so when he smacks you in the head with it, you're going to feel it. And he kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. And it becomes a legend. It becomes part of the story. Like Samson went and killed these people. And it says over and over in chapters 14 and 15 that the Spirit of God rushed on Samson and he was able to defeat these enemies. That's a recurring theme in, in chapters 14 and 15. The Spirit of God is with Samson every time he does something. But there's something in our hearts. There's something sinful in our hearts. Um, and I don't, I, I, I'm sure that somebody somewhere has a more eloquent way of putting it. But as I was thinking about it this week, I just call it the principle of self-actualization. Uh, maybe the law or the lie of self-actualization. When we come to a place, any of us, and Samson in particular, but I think this is true of any of us, when we come to a place of blessing, where God has delivered us or he's used us in a mighty way, our sinful hearts will always try to reorder the events so that we are the hero. We will always think when we arrive at a place of blessing that we earned it, we deserved it, we did the work. And in 14 and 15, the Spirit of God is always rushing on Samson. In chapter 16, he still has feats of strength, but he's, never again does it say that the Spirit of God rushed upon him. He begins to take credit and think that he's too big for his britches, and it's the beginning of his demise. But God's salvation is not stopped by our rebellion against his designs. In chapter 16, uh, he ends up uh, eliminating the defenses of a Philistine city. There's a prostitute involved. It's an interesting story. I'd encourage you to read it. And he ends up again, because he makes all of his decisions by following his loins, in, in uh, a relationship with a woman called Delilah. And Delilah is clearly motivated by financial gain. We don't know if she was an Israelite, and we don't know if she was a Philistine, but what we know is she got paid to try and get the secret of Samson's strength. Samson over and over again is humiliating the Philistines, and now the lords of the Philistines have realized this guy thinks uh, with his loins, and so we need to get a woman on our team that's going to help us bring him down, help us find his secret. And so Delilah keeps pressing him and pressing him and pressing him and nagging him and nagging him and nagging him and, nagging him and over and over again, and, and, and that is Samson's weakness. 
he gets nagged into saying, actually, like, the last thing left to me is my hair. I was set aside as a Nazarite from my mother's birth. She did not drink wine. Um, I did not drink wine, but now I have had wine, and I have touched dead things, and the only thing left to me is my hair. That must be the source of my strength. And he ends up bound, and they scoop out his eyeballs, and they utterly humiliate him. This, this guy who's killed 300 and then 1,000 of the Philistines, like he, or he now has been completely humiliated. But God's salvation is not stopped by our rebellion against his designs. So I'd like to read with you, if you read with me, Judges chapter 16, beginning in verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. (laughs) For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, Yahweh, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah his father. He judged Israel 20 years. That small sentence there at the end is interesting. He judged Israel 20 years. This is, actually, this is only the second time it's mentioned. He was a judge who didn't seem to benefit anybody in the country other than that he killed Philistines. The salvation that God used him for was minor. And even his greatest feat of strength, blinded and humiliated, pushing over the the columns that held the temple up and killing all of these Philistines with his death, even that was incomplete. The Philistines didn't go away. They didn't stop oppressing the nation of Israel. The Philistines even are having a celebration to their god, little g-god Dagon, because he delivered 
Samson into their hands, well, we know from earlier in the chapter that it wasn't that Dagon had delivered Samson, is that the spirit of Yahweh had left him, had abandoned him. And even as he's pushing over the pillars of, 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 and killing Philistines, he's not thinking of the glory of Yahweh, and he's not thinking of the deliverance of Israel. He's asking for revenge because they scooped his eyeballs out. This salvation is incomplete. And so when we look at a text like this, when we look at an anti-hero like Samson, when we think about the ways that God worked in, this li in his life and through his life and through his parents' life, what are we supposed to take away from this? By and large, it seems to me like Samson was an unwilling judge. It seems to me like he was more interested in gratifying his own selfish desires than in helping the people of Israel. But God sent, us, sent for us a deliverer who was willing, who left riches and glory and honor and splendor and came and was born into poverty that he might live among us. Willingly. We look at Samson and we look at Jesus, there's no comparison. And when I look at Samson and I look at Jesus, in my own heart, I often identify more with Samson than with Christ. But God's salvation is not stopped by our rebellion against God's design. Samson rejected his, his vow that he'd been set apart for by God. He touched dead things, he drank wine, and then he allowed his hair to be cut. And God left him. But even in the midst of all of that rejection of God's plan for Samson's life, God still did what he wanted to do through him. And the takeaway, as we consider salvation from this text of Judges, I think is this. That th these temporary salvations, these temporary deliverances that we see articulated in this book should make us thirsty for ultimate and true salvation. Should make us yearn for the Savior who comes willingly and serves out of love and compassion for us as opposed to one who begrudgingly kind of does what God wants. We should be more and more captivated with the glory of Jesus that he would come and lay down his life an offering for us that we might have true life with the Father. If we're going to break the cycle, we need to look at the Savior. And it can be discouraging at times to think that there are so many ways that we've gone wrong. As it can be difficult to look at the sin in our hearts and to say, wow, God, like how is it that you could save me? It can be discouraging. But when we see the salvation that God extends to us freely through Jesus, we are reminded that God's salvation is not stopped by our rebellion. He loves us the same. And he invites us the same to follow him.
Would you pray together with me? God, Samson's story is frustrating sometimes to try to wrap our minds around. You give us a lot of detail, um, more detail than almost anybody else in the Old Testament about how he was born. It strikes us as odd. (laughs) Why this guy? But God, it reminds me that you are intimately familiar with all of our stories. That you know who we are and where we've come from. And that you still extend to us the hand of grace. For those of us who have already begun to trust you, have have put our faith in Jesus to be our Savior, God, would you remind us anew that your sin or that your grace walks with us every step of the way as we deal with our sin? That you have conquered it, and that you give us life. And for those of us who are not yet sure we want to trust Jesus, God, would you be moving? Would your spirit be moving in our hearts and tugging us to make that choice? The first step in a lifetime of learning from you and being shaped by you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.